Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Thinking Poker podcast. Many of you have probably heard this spiel before, but there was a brief period of time during 2014 when the Thinking Poker podcast was exclusively available on the Poker News podcast feed. That feed, as far as I know, is now deceased. Uh, we had the rights to the episodes, but we didn't have the actual audio files for the episodes for a long time. Along came Russ Fox to the rescue. I was able to provide us with audio files of all of those um, episodes that were missing from the Thinking Poker feed, meaning that those of you who have subscribed, and I know there have been some people who have gone back to the beginning and tried to listen to uh, all or at least select episodes from our archives, and there was this big gap from 2014 where certain episodes weren't available. So we are making those episodes available now in our regular feed. This is one of them. It is a conversation from 2014 between myself and Leo Wolpert. Like episode 85, it was recorded in person in Las Vegas. During uh, the, this episode, <laughs> it was recorded during day six of the main event. Neither Leo and I were playing, but both Leo and I had made day six of the main event before. And so we were talking about those experiences and just how the 2014 event had gone for us. I tell you all this so that you understand why we're jumping from episode 309 to episode 86, and also so you keep in mind uh, that anything that we talk about during the show as like coming up soon or having happened recently was coming up soon or had happened recently in 2014, so don't get excited. I'm going to do my best to scrub the ads from the actual episode. Apologies if I miss one. While we're on the subject, have you signed up for Tournament Poker Edge yet? That's the place to hear me talk about loads of poker strategy. You can hear me talk about poker strategy in 2014. You can hear me talk about poker strategy in 2019. I've been making videos for them for quite some time. They've got a huge archive of videos from myself and many others, and you'll get access to all of that for as little as $25 a month at www.tournamentpokeredge.com. The other place to get Thinking Poker Strategy is at www.nitcast.com. That's N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. That's where Nate and I make available uh, some premium podcasts, uh, all strategy episodes that we've done. Most, re most recently, the Weekend Warrior podcast, which is geared towards uh, serious recreational no-limit cash players, uh, primarily people playing in live 1-3 and 2-5 games. Uh, we've got advice on how to make the most of your limited play and study time, plus loads of hand history review from uh, hands that Nate and I actually played. You can hear us talk through uh, poker strategy in 2019 and insight specifically how it applies for the, uh, for the serious recreational player, people who um, are not in a position to be you know, grinding PioSolver for hours a day, but do want to apply some insights from cutting edge poker strategy to their game. That is available at knitcast.com. Enjoy the show. Dangerous dealing in as relapse hums above the den It's hard to know if this will be the day
Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Thinking Poker Podcast, coming to you from inside of the Amazon room on day six of the World Series of Poker main event. I'm Andrew Brokus, joined by Leo Wolpert. Hi, and uh, thanks for having me on, Andrew. Really appreciate it. It's uh, a little eerie being in the Amazon room with so few tables left and maybe 80% of the room being completely stone empty and just the middle part of it <laughs> having, oh, you know, the last few tables of the biggest poker tournament of the year. Yeah, I was uh, I was hoping to be in this room on this day at this time. Me too. Uh, behind a microphone was not <laughs> the number one place I was. But behind to a chip stack, definitely. Yeah. What I would prefer, but you know, sometimes sometimes you don't make it out of level two in the main event. So, uh, yeah, here I am. <laughs> and I'll, I'll just explain quickly to people. Uh, Nate Mavis is not here. He uh, has left Las Vegas already, and we still have access to this awesome uh, Poker News recording equipment. And so I figured, well, let's find someone else I have some good chemistry with and get on the microphone. And uh, Absolutely. Leo, willing to come through on short notice. Thank you, sir. You're, you're most welcome, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be using a professional setup. I, I feel like I'm living the dream of um, being in a, in a radio studio. <laughs> I, I grew up listening to talk radio just I wouldn't say obsessively, but spending far too many hours in a day listening to people yak and laugh on the radio. So honestly, it's almost like living the dream, <laughs> talking into a big a big boy microphone instead of a little bitty headpiece microphone that I hook into my laptop and gets garbled through Skype and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I'm sure my, my ramblings will be, you know, crystal clear. Now, we have both been here, uh, day six of the main event. For you, it was 2012. No, that's correct. Um, what do you remember about that experience, like make, making it into the top 100 of the main event? Well, what I really remember is um, just playing pretty calmly throughout all of day, days one through four. Mm. I mean, I lost a third of my stack in the first orbit of, this, of that tournament and somehow just ran it back up, right. ran super pure for the first four days. And then day five, just ran out of steam halfway through. Uh, all the stuff I was doing just kind of stopped working. You know, I would like four bet and the guy would five bet me and I'd have to fold mm -hmm. when they were always folding before. Um, just stuff like that. So by the time I got this deep in the main event on day six, I was pretty short. I had a, I had what I would like to call a comfort zone stack of between 12 and 25 big blinds. Uh, and I just came in very willing to, very willing to get it in and gamble. Um, but unfortunately the cards did not really let me put that plan into effect. <laughs> uh, I did get lucky once and sucked out on uh, Roland Israelishvili, and that got on TV. And so one, one TV moment is getting ace-queen suited in against ace-king and sucking out uh, on day six of the main. Yeah, I, I remember because I, um, I think I flew out of Las Vegas that day. So I, I came by in the morning and was sweating you a bit. And right. then I got on an airplane and I, and I flew. So I, I didn't have like Twitter access to Twitter updates. This is like pre... Uh, well, anyway... Pre-ubiquitous pre Wi-Fi on, on planes, which, by the way... I, I can never bring myself to use that. I was about to N say, Nitcast Nit moment Nit right I, here. It probably was available, and I just didn't pay for it. Now, I mean, $10 for two hours of Wi-Fi, that's pretty much unusably slow. No, thank you. Yeah. I, I'd, rather, I'd rather play a slot machine. <laughs> there, I said it. So, uh, so I, you know, I landed, and the first thing I did was like pull up Twitter and see how Leo's doing. So I'm kind of looking at things. like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my, at my Twitter feed and going through an order like how your tournament has gone so i see like leo doubles up leo and i'm like oh great and then literally like four minutes before i landed leo's like bust out 50. <laughs> mm, yeah it was a fun summer though because i mean we had ben Yu sweating um he went to kinko's and printed up a giant picture of my head that he put on a stick <laughs> which uh was entertaining um 
not at all distracting. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean that actually sincerely. Even if I sounded sarcastic, it really wasn't. Uh, yeah, that's and, cool. And, and also because people are like pulling for you like that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's a, a way bigger benefit than a distraction because just having having the knowledge that people are in your corner and are really pulling for you to succeed, uh, it, it helps me play better for sure. Well, and things go so slow on that day too. I mean, I remember. Um, well, one of the times that I made day six, uh, my um, <laughs> nice brag, subtle. <laughs> my girlfriend was out here with me, and I mean, it really can be oh, like man. day six, the main event, and a girlfriend. <laughs> it's like Bragg City over here. From the time that you fold to the time that you're ready to play another hand, like it can really be ten minutes. Absolutely, everyone is going into the tank, and um, actually, on day five of the main event when I went deep, I was at the same table as uh, Greg Merson, who of course won it eventually. I was there when he got crippled uh, with. Uh, pair and flush draw versus set mm. and i gave him his first double up he should really you know thank me maybe send me a card <laughs> one of these days um and he called one of the best spike clocks i've ever seen i don't even know if i've told this story before <laughs> i'm curious to hear but there's this french guy who was just tanking on every single pre-flop decision taking a solid you know 45 you know 45 seconds to a minute just to fold you know whatever he has under the gun it's like come on buddy you can look at your cards and make a decision is it in the you know top 11 percent of your range or whatever right. uh no it's not it's just fold already and he was doing this habitually over and over again and finally greggy just like snaps and not snaps <laughs> in like a, a ridiculous psycho way but, but enough. in the yeah he's just he's over this guy and it get the action gets to this guy pre-flop he's like under the gun too greggy snap calls clock and i was like <laughs> God, I'm so glad somebody finally had the balls to do this to this guy and just not like put him in his place, but don't hurry the fuck up. Like, <laughs> how can you take so long for all these decisions? And I, I'd like to think that justice was done when he eventually won that tournament just because of that spike clock. Yeah, well, and also because he played amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I called it, uh, actually, I didn't call it clock, I, but I had a guy who was doing that on like day three. He was already, I mean, you could just tell he was there. Uh, I think on, on my blog, I nicknamed him Bubba because I didn't know his real name, <laughs> but he, he, he looked like a Bubba. Um, but Is he, he wearing overalls? I don't uh, know if he had overalls. <laughs> he did have like a big floppy fisherman's hat. And, uh, sure was his name Mavis. <laughs> <laughs> this guy probably had 200 pounds on name Mavis. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, you, you could tell. And to some extent, like, you know, I obviously... Um, I'm being a little rude, I guess, right now. But, uh, I mean, I, you want recreational players. I want to have a good time in this tournament. I want them to also. And you, know, you pay your money to some extent. You get to play the way that you want to. But, like, literally every single pre-flop decision, he's look at his cards, slowly look left, slowly look right, look at his cards again, deep breath, another 10 seconds, fold. And he's folding everything. Absolutely. You know, we're not that close. We're still, like, you know, a day from the money. It's not like he's just going to fold into the money. And... Um, and so I was trying to think of, like, how can I get this guy to actually speed up? Because if you just say something to him, you know, most people just get, like, spiteful and bitter right. and do it more just to irritate you or whatever. So I was like, well, maybe I'll try to catch him during break and just talk to him one-on-one -on -one and not in front of, like, a whole table full of people so it won't be, like, calling him out in public. Then he was, like, coming back from the break, and I was like, I cannot, cannot, cannot <laughs> take another two hours of this. Oh, yeah, well, I, I think uh, why I thought Greggy's decision was so great is because I think this guy was a pro, and he was right. just... If you're a pro, you should not be taking a minute for every single preflop decision every when you're folding heaps. Right, right. I mean, even if he was like on the bubble uh, with a tiny stack and was stalling into the money, at least I'll respect that as a strategic decision. Um, but just doing it for the sake of doing it, I, I can't stand it. Yeah, and and a pro might be more embarrassed into like not doing that anymore. Versus, yeah, he did stop yeah. too, so it had its intended effect. 
because I said something to this guy. I was like, you know, sir, I, uh, I would never call the clock on you if you had a big decision or something. But, you know, if when you don't have a tough decision, if you could pull it a little more quickly, I think probably the whole table would appreciate it. And really like I think I was I tried to be about that nice about it. I tried to be as nice as I could be and he like looked at he hadn't said anything like the whole day since he'd been there but he like looked at me and looked back and like didn't say anything and then like about a minute later he's like do you realize what a douchebag it makes you look like this <laughs> holy shit wow and then like there oh, so I guess he's tanking on every decision he's tanking with his comebacks he's tanking with his poker decisions uh yeah this guy maybe just just really likes to be deliberative. <laughs> deliberate, <laughs> maybe. Thankfully, a few other people at the table kind of stepped in at that point and were like, I don't think that was a douchey thing. I would also appreciate it if you would play faster. Like, And uh, he got a little better after that. But, yeah, he did call me a douchebag. Well, can't, w- can't win them all, but I feel like you did win <laughs> the moral victory and uh, and the poker victory, too. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, day six. Um were you, I mean, I, I guess it sounds like you weren't really that nervous coming into it because you didn't have, you didn't feel like you were going to have a lot of tough decisions. You're going to be short stacked. And no, it was definitely one of those, um, one of the situations where I've been playing tournament poker for a while, and I feel pretty comfortable with those stack sizes. And then I'm not going to really do anything too ridiculous or make any sort of super ridiculous uh, mistake. Mm-hmm. So the hope was just to spin it up, and uh, almost did but then didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Did you start fantasizing about like, oh, who are the people I would bring out here if I make the November 9? What kind of t-shirt am I going to make? That sort of stuff. Oh, no, I do that fantasizing even before the main event starts. <laughs> uh, so by the time I actually play, that's all out of my system. Uh, yeah, actually this year I was thinking about going out dressed as Slash <laughs> while November Rain plays in the background to do a little air guitar, <laughs> um, wear the top hat and the wig, come out shirtless, rip my shirt off. I mean, there's so many ways to play it that I would never have the balls to do in reality. But, you know, hey, idle fantasy. <laughs> uh, I mean, does it does it cause you physical pain to be in this room now, watching these people playing and, and not being there? Uh, there's a little bit of envy, but I wouldn't say physical pain. Uh, well, definitely not physical pain. Um, <laughs> it's not like I – I mean, maybe if I, like, stepped on a nail or something on the way in here, stepped on one of those, like, loose staples that are probably all around here as the as – the, Amazon and Brasilia and all these other rooms slowly get deconstructed yeah. into their... Yeah, it's weird. I mean, you talk about seeing seeing the Amazon room half empty, but seeing the like completely empty Brasilia room with just like garbage on the floor and yeah, no it's, tables it's just Yeah, walking by there is just garbage on the floor and no tables, and they still have the banners up there, yeah. which is kind of, <laughs> kind of weird. You could imagine them having some, I don't know, I almost said like a quinceanera, but I feel like this is not <laughs> like the... This is not the place for to have a quinceanera. It's more like a, a business convention. Uh, but imagining like a group of businessmen hanging around the Brazilian room and just seeing those, uh, seeing these banners with pictures of random people and being like, <laughs> who are these people? What is this poker thing? <laughs> Why don't they dress better if they're <laughs> world champions? <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, definitely yeah. envy is the, is the, the strongest emotion I get when it approaches these days of the main event and I'm still not in. This year it doesn't bother me so much because I was like not even close. But I mean, like years when I've gone somewhat deep, like the last thing that I want is to then be around 
I mean, I, I made an exception. Well, I didn't get that deep the year that you were deep, but you know, I, I made an exception to, to come back and sweat you. But in general, like once I'm out, especially if uh, you know if I've been fortunate enough to make like day six myself, the last thing I want then is to come back and watch them play down to nine people on day seven or something and be like, hey, he was better than that guy. I was better than that guy. Why is he still there? And I'm not, you know, like that. <laughs> well, it did help a lot that uh, my housemate Scotty Abrams uh, went also went deep and got 12th in that main event. So I had reason to stick around i had somebody to sweat and also you know winning 156k or whatever it was <laughs> it or takes the edge whatever off. percentage i had it, it's still enough to make me feel pretty good about how the summer went yeah um and that but yeah, that's the thing i don't know i felt like i felt good about that two or three days afterwards like because i mean really what happens is you make three or four hundred thousand dollars on day five in equity and then you lose <laughs> two or three hundred thousand dollars on equity on day six when you go out. So it doesn't. I mean, you get you get that big check, but it doesn't immediately feel like I won a bunch of money, or it didn't for me anyway. I felt like I just I lost a bunch of money today. I won even more yesterday, which was great, but I lost a bunch of money today, and I didn't I didn't get to where I you know where where my hopes were set. Oh yeah, I almost never really think about my my equity in the tournament until I feel like it's going to have a really material effect on my decisions. Yeah. Like if it's the final table when their payout jumps every spot, or even if it's the final two tables and their payout jumps coming up frequently, then I'll think about the, the equity. But even when there are 50 people left, I was not thinking about the swings in my, in my equity at all. Um, yeah, I'm not saying I was thinking about it in those terms, but I, just, like, I imagine a lot of people are listening to this and being like, what would you be disappointed about? You just won you know, $150,000. And I, right. I'm, I'm kind of saying that's not exactly what happened. Like, you actually lost a lot of money on, day, on the, the day that you go out. You usually actually lost a lot of money. And true, you won true. a lot of money on your, on your previous days. But, uh, I mean, you can, you can imagine that you also feel the pain of the, of the equity that you lost and not only the... The, the joy of the cash that you won. Oh, definitely. I, I feel like I would feel that way if I had if I felt like I'd played worse. If yeah, I felt like I had made a bunch of blunders and you know really cost myself the equity, then I would probably feel now that pain a lot more. In a win, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but man, if you know when I just lose a flip or just don't get don't get the cards or don't get the spots, uh, I think I'm a little better at shrugging that off, and especially that summer because. I had been coming off from a pretty big hiatus in poker. Mm. I had taken the bar exam. I was you know, considering just getting a, a real job and just playing poker very, very rarely. And then to have that score uh, was such a buoying feeling, even if it wasn't the, the eight point whatever million that up top. Right. Just having a, a score it. there. It's like I can still play. I can still yeah, make decisions with these people and find their leaks and hopefully keep them from finding mine. <laughs> Well, and then you ended up um, working, I guess, on, on a team that Jason Somerville yep. put together uh, to coach November Niner. Uh, the final table? Yeah. Still probably available on YouTube. Those videos <laughs> are very, very uh, well produced. Um, and, I mean, there's a lot of effort put into making those. Uh, the production team, if only I could remember the company. I mean, they just it really actually opened my eyes to what could be done with, um, with uh, web broadcasting and in, at least in terms of poker. Yeah, Jason Somerville seems to have a good sense of uh, how to do that sort of stuff. Oh, absolutely. He's, uh, I mean, it's his passion. Mm. So so you guys were working with uh, Russell Thomas? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what, I, I assume you were chosen, well, I guess Chase, Jason was chosen because he was also deep that year. Obviously right, I think he was player. actually at a table with Russ on day five or six. Mm. 
and then I mean I, I assume you know, he also chose you in, in part because you guys are friends and in part because you had gone deep that year and presumably had played with some of the people including Greg Merson who, uh, who yep. made the final table I think it's probably more of the former um, uh, just because uh, hopefully I don't want to put words in his mouth but uh, hopefully at the time and maybe even afterwards he felt that I could contribute at least in terms of poker knowledge poker tactics poker strategy um, and be kind of a a decent stand-in for for practice games, mm-hmm. um, and not only not because I'm be I'd be playing great, but because I'd be trying to emulate the styles that I would anticipate some of these other players had. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, uh, what really struck me about that experience uh, was first of all how good Russell was already at poker. Like you expect when you hear somebody is coming in as uh, just coming off a career as an actuary. And making the main event final table, you think, okay, this is a guy who got lucky, right. who, you know, is just, you know, kind of like a fish in a heater. And that is absolutely not Russell Thomas. He's an amazing poker player. And that's really probably the biggest surprise is just how, how patient he was in the simulations and how just good he was at those fundamental skills that, like hand reading for one, mm. and just explaining his thought process. Um, he's just so good at those things that make you those things that make a good poker player. What did it feel like for you to be part of that final table experience? Uh, well, I mean, I, I felt like honored for one, just uh, that someone thinks enough of me to, yeah, to like want to, you to yeah, coach yeah, them me for to, the biggest poker game. Exactly. Want me to help out with this, you know, this giant tournament. Um, and also it was just a great experience because a lot of the people I was coaching with, I either knew from before and was friends with from before or became friends with. Mm-hmm. And it, having you know having a good time along with helping somebody prepare to increase their equity in this gigantic tournament so it's a great combo i imagine you benefited a lot from the experience with your own game getting to play with a lot of other oh definitely and talk over strategy with them and that kind of stuff absolutely there's some really eye-opening experiences matt berkey was another person there mm-hmm. who uh i mean he just it thinks very outside the box in terms of poker um and that very, very much opened my eyes to things I would never have thought of just because sometimes you play poker for, you know, years and you kind of think of things, begin to think of things in a rote, ossified manner. Yeah. And just being around somebody who will say, okay, I'm going to open limp here and here's why, when you would never have an open limping range. <laughs> uh, just, just hearing that and hearing that thought process and hearing how it affects his decisions later on in the hand was very, very insightful. Were there things that you felt like you needed to take into account um, because it was the main event and final table? Uh, I mean, even aside from like ICM stuff that would apply at any final table, what kinds of strategic considerations did you guys talk about for it being the WSFP specifically? Well, uh, one thing is a little bit of research on on opponents. That was obviously the main thing. Mm -hmm. Finding out actually who was coaching them, like finding out that, uh, Vanessa was coaching Jesse Silvio was a big thing sure. but also I mean Jesse and Russ were roommates so they probably knew each other's game pretty well already mm-hmm. um, but I think the ICM considerations were one of the biggest things actually Sure. Uh, just kind of pounding that in uh, what we did was we had a little bit of a competition we'd run these final table simulations and then whoever came out the most ahead of their ICM value with their starting stack <laughs> would, would win and I did not do so well but uh <laughs> Um, besides ICM, I think it was really just um, opponent-specific things mm. and trying to think about what a specific opponent would do. 
What What are your sources of information on that? Aside from I mean, obviously hands that make it on the WSOP broadcast, but like how right. else do you learn information about the opponents? Uh, I guess Poker News is one. Mm. Uh, Poker News is a pretty big, big resource in that regard. Um, Try to get people's like online screen names and exactly and finding their online screen names, finding, and that's good because all of us combined in that group had played a pretty significant number of online tournaments. We had some yeah, like put your own pretty big database together at that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it really is remarkable how much preparation can be done for this. I mean, I'm always kind of blown away. Like I was, uh, I think maybe on past shows that we've had you on, we talked a little bit about uh, debate. Which, you know, I was involved in competitive debate in like high school and college, and the amount of effort that goes into winning the college debate championship. Um, and there's no cash prize directly associated with that. There's a trophy, and I mean, obviously, it looks very good on a law school resume or whatever. <laughs> but um, there's, you know, there, there's not eight million dollars on the line for for winning that. But there are like, I mean, the, the teams of a hundred plus people essentially working together on this, and they've got some of their junior debaters sitting in other rounds, essentially scouting potential opponents and keeping track of what arguments they've made. They've got teams of researchers prepared to research arguments that have come up in these rounds that they've scouted. Uh, it's like it's a it's a big production and i mean obviously you you guys had this i think it might be the 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 production that, that jason put together for russell seems to me like the biggest uh i mean I, i'm not that familiar with what other november niners have done to prepare but this it seemed like the like most coordinated effort that's been done to prepare for the final table uh, it's certainly uh, i mean certainly the most well publicized coordinated effort uh um, yeah, because i, I honestly have no idea if they yeah they might have gone into a cave somewhere with <laughs> like phil Galfond and and Phil Ivy, and then got all the knowledge that way somehow. But like uh, even before the final table, I mean, I still f- I seem seems like not everyone is even googling their opponent, like getting their their like day four table draw and googling their opponents. Uh, I mean, that's gotten a little bit more frequent in, in recent years. But uh, I'm still kind of surprised by the amount of preparation that people could do and don't. Oh yeah, but I guess I think, that's true uh, of poker in general. Yeah, I think that I think the variance element to poker has a lot to do with that because yeah. it's very easy to take a fatalist view and say, well. I'm either going to get lucky or fucking I'm going to lose. Um, I mean, obviously, that's not the right way to look at it. And you should be trying to amplify your edges and put in the work to give yourself opportunities. But still, it's not it's not chess where if you put in the work and you know you're and you're the work to be, quote unquote, better than somebody else. Or I guess like also debate or quiz bowl, which I'm familiar with. It's not like those in which, where. There's like a real direct payoff. Exactly, and results. it's very—it's not—it's not obscured by variance. Right. You when you, you know, study and, and there's so many analogies to quiz bowl with debate, except I guess it's on a smaller scale because it's only teams of four instead of teams of hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, where you'll you'll look at your opponents, you'll find out your weaknesses in, in your knowledge, and then you'll kind of compensate with that with very directed, um, focused effort. Whereas with poker. If you're, you can have a lot of directed focus, effort, focus and effort in in improving your game, but you, you can still run really bad and, yeah. <laughs> and, and not see any results for a long time, especially live. Um, so a lot of people probably think, well, there's so much variance, I'm not even going to bother with yeah. this extra preparation. Um, and it might be rational from some point of view because maybe they have something better to do with their time. Uh, but if not, then why are they in the main event to begin with? Hmm. <laughs> That's a good, good question. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, variants and running bad, let's uh, go listen to a couple commercials and then we can talk about uh, our main events this year. All right. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I'm actually not 100% sure, although I think I might have picked up from hearing you, you talk about it. How far did you make it in the 2014 main event? Uh, in the 2014 main event, I lasted uh, about halfway through level two. So that is well, on okay, so I, three hours. It's, I think it was a new record. I know I've busted on day one before, but uh, I, think, I think I'd always made the antis, which I didn't do this year. And, uh, you know, it was some running bad and maybe some uh, not playing so great. Lost a third of my stack. Kings and aces where, I mean, I could have lost all of it, yeah. but maybe you could have lost less. Um, then got in a spot where I had two overs and a flush draw. It was up against an overpair, didn't hit my 12-outer. Mm -hmm. And it's another spot where, well, maybe this is a spot where in the main event specifically, I could just, you know, flat with my, my good draws and not try to, you know, push them off better ace highs and whatnot, blah, right. blah, blah. And... Yeah, instead, I guess I could fault myself for taking a you know a forty-five, fifty-five early in the main event and not winning, mm -hmm. and uh, so that got me down to about twenty bigs. Comfort zone. Comfort zone, and uh, Robert Mizraki opened the hijack, and I looked down at the big blind of Ace Five suited. Pretty in she goes. Yeah. He tank calls it off with uh, the king queen, and I lose. So there you have it. Yeah. <laughs> <Thanks>. Yep. <laughs> I'll, uh, if, if you don't mind, I'll run my bust out hand past let's, you. Let's hear it. I um like my my day one, well even my day two really mostly just card dead. Like not a lot of strong starting hands. Had to fold some some strong starting hands when I when I did make them. So came into day two with like fifteen k, waffled around a little bit between fifteen and, and twenty, and was kind of at my high water mark when when this came up. And I'll say my day two table by the way was pretty good. Um, not people making like huge blatant mistakes, but I also think there was only one other pro at the table, and he was on my immediate right. There's actually a chance you know him, uh, Danny Wong. He's Danny Wong, I've, I've heard. I don't know him personally, but I've heard the name, and he's a guy who's had a lot of success. He seemed to be playing um, pretty well. He went deep in the main, yeah, the 2012, right? I think he made the final two tables. I want to say. Speaking um, of not doing my research, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, I, I definitely thought he was was playing pretty well. Um, so, I mean, he was he was the toughest spot at the table. Thankfully, he was on my immediate right. And you know, some people's reaction to the sand has been, well, you know, you have position on this guy eight times out of nine. Uh, just don't get involved with him the, the one time that you don't. So I'll be, I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on that as well. Okay. But this is uh, the very last hand before the first break. Um, so there's, there's that dynamic there. Uh, the action folds to him on the button. And the player in the big blind, I would say, is the, the weakest player at the table. Um, at least a little bit. Like, I've seen him cold call raises with, like, king seven suited, queen four suited. So I mean, probably going to call pretty wide out of his big blind, but also probably not going to play very well after the flop, including, like, giving up way too easily to flop C-bets. Uh, so first question is, what would you expect Danny's opening range to be on the button? Uh, gigantic. Yeah, um, that was an <laughs> assumption as well. Um, I would not be surprised to see him opening as, as wide as, like, I don't know, seven three off. Probably an open, uh, you know, six deuce off. He's probably opening it. Um, I don't know. I just, given your description of the big blind is as pretty weak, uh, I, it's hard to fathom him folding much on the button. That, that was my. Th I, I was like, I think any two is very plausible here, or, or damn near any two anyway. Was was my thinking? Uh, you know, even even just anticipating like if it folds to him on the button, I think he's going to be really wide. Uh, uh, and he should be. I mean, so the uh, the the blinds two fifty five with a fifty ante. Um, he opens to 1100, which has been his, his normal open size. And I have Jack nine suited in the small blind. I have 20 K. He has like 35 K. I think big blind covers both of us. 
Um, so you started the hand with uh, like 40 bigs, yep. about? I mean, I can't fault either option that involves you putting more money in the pot. No, I, uh, I did. Really I, I think folding is, is, pretty, is pretty disastrously nitty. Um, let's see. I'd probably end up flatting here, especially because if the big blind is one of those guys who is either weak and just playing face-up post-flop or not playing well in multi-weight pots post-flop, um, or if he's just going to fold immediately, that's that's fine too. And now I get to play a pretty controlled pot almost, mm-hmm. albeit out of position, um, with a with a hand that you know plays plays well, a hand that you can you can check raise a lot of flops with, a hand where you can check raise and then go and then barrel off with if you need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll often your semi buffs will have you know, uh, heaps of equity. Um, but on the other hand. Three betting against such a ridiculously wide range is going to win you the pot so often that I think it might just be the better play. If he's opening, if he's literally opening any two, yeah, uh, and you have forty bigs, if you three bet on the biggish side, maybe a little over three x or something, he's going to be hard pressed to continue with hmm. some massive chunk of his range. Um, so overall, I think I it's close. I, overall, I think if I'm playing my absolute best, I'll probably three bet it. Um, but there's also the quote unquote main event considerations where it's the allegedly softest tournament of the year, <laughs> right. the best allegedly best structured tournament of the year. Your tournament life means, I guess, more in this one. And so you want to be playing a small, uh, smaller pot. So if you want to, uh, I really can't fault you for for flatting or for three betting. And you know, I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure that flatting is the more conservative route. You know, because flatting flatting means you go to a flop versus if you three bet and he just folds a lot. That's true. Um, you know, there, there's something to be said for that as well. The uh, the one comment that Nate made, and it's it's too bad he's not here to discuss the hand on air, but I wanna I wanna bring him here in spirit because I thought this was a great line for All him. All right, well let's uh, let's break out the Ouija board and the the crystal ball. <laughs> channel uh, channel the spirit of Nate. We, we were talking about the pluses and minuses of, of calling, and I said, well, you know, calling it kind of gives the the big blind a chance to make a a lot of profitable calls with hands that, that you know, have good equity against. Jack Knight said that you know he would clearly be folding if he had a cold three bet in front of him. Uh, I guess three bets are always cold, but well, he's getting them three bet. But anyway, if he's got a three bet in front of him, he's probably folding uh, a lot of hands that he's going to call with. And and Nate said, but if he's not a good player, he's probably going to turn a lot of plus EV calls into negative EV calls. Now, that's, that's a really good point. Uh, it might be plus EV in the hands of you or somebody who has, has an idea of, of what to do in these multi-way pots, but against uh, somebody who might just be playing absurdly fit or fold, for example, and who's never going to put you in a difficult spot. You might want him to put in his 1,100 more. Yeah. Or his, excuse me, 600 more, right? 600 more. Yeah, 11, 11 I, was total. Think, I was thinking you opened a 2,100. This is why I need to write this down. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, the, the ultimate consideration for me, calling versus three betting, is I really don't like getting into like the pre flop re raising wars. Right. And this is one of those spots where like I think he also. Will will know that I know that he's opening really wide on the button, and you know it might be inclined to. I mean, not the not the Jack Nine suit is the worst five bet jamming hand either. Like if I do think he's going to four bet pretty light, just like three betting and then chipping it. With Jack how, how big was his stack, by the way? I don't know. I he he had, might have mentioned he it. He had but like thirty five. Oh yeah. 35. Well, I think that's a stack where he's a little less likely to go for uh, get into some sort of super aggro pre flop shenanigans. Mm-hmm. If he had you know eighty k or something, yeah, where he just might say I. I'm going to pile in this guy's face because it's only 15% of my stack. Um, 
that's probably different. But yeah. I think he's probably folding. I would think with the, the stack size, he, he'd be a little more inclined to fold immediately to a lot of three bets. Yeah, that that's uh, certainly a stronger argument for three betting. But in any event, I called, and the big blend called as well as anticipated. All right. So I'm holding the jack nine of clubs. We've got uh, 37.50 in the pot, and we see a 10 of clubs, five of diamonds, deuce of clubs flop. So I've got the. So you the got three to a straight flush here. Right. Three to, three to a straight four flush. Four to a flush. Four to a flush. Yeah. Over card to the board. Uh, nine quite possibly live, even if someone did pair the board. Okay. And you have um, like 19K back at this point? Correct. And there's. Yeah, yeah 45. 3.7 in the pot. Okay. 3.7 in the pot, right. Um, so I guess we're, we're looking at a stack to pot ratio of about five, five to six. Um, I actually let out here, which uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious your your thoughts on that versus checking? I mean, I think my default is to check raise here, but I have really very little in the way of proving whether or not it's it's right. Um, mm. One problem is that I don't think, I guess I have enough uh, value hands in check raising here. Sets, maybe ace 10. Um, Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'd, f I'd feel comfortable check raising pretty wide for value, or given how wide I think his range is. You know, like, I think he's going to be pretty reluctant to fold a five to a check raise. Right, maybe any 10, really. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think check any, raise any for 10 value. is a value check raise for sure. Not that I have that many 10s in my, I mean. Well, yeah, I, I, I also I think if, if, you, if you check, he's going to bet probably in the neighborhood of, or I guess you got to wait to see what the big blind does. Yeah, but most likely he's checking. I guess there's, yeah. I mean, if if the big blind is going to lead out honestly, there's value in checking just to like get that information from him. If the big blind checks pretty much his whole range, which I think is likely, then I'm less concerned about checking to get that information. Yeah, I think actually the big blind being in the hand kind of makes me want to check more. Yeah. Um, because when you lead, you're just giving up your you're giving up an opportunity to get two pieces of free information from a check because you'll get the big blinds information. You'll get you get to see what Danny does on the button. Mm. Um, yeah. And also, I feel like there are some kind of really gross spots. Like, what if they both call your, your flop lead? Uh, it seems kind of... It'll be kind of lost on a lot of non-club turns. And even a club turn, I mean, you're not folding a flush. But I would not expect to... Or I would not be surprised if, when I got it in, after making a flush that I would get it in drawing dead Yeah. if two people were to continue. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty unlikely. Right. Maybe I just have a bit of monsters in the bed, <laughs> bed syndrome here. Oh, also, if you check raise and the big blind continues somehow, you have yes, very, that. very, very <laughs> accurate information good. as to what he has <laughs> and can probably get away from it pretty cheaply. Whereas if you flat, if it goes check, check, bet, call, I mean, you probably you'll probably also get the same information for cheaper, mm -hmm. but huh? I guess like part of, part of my issue with check raising, I felt like the the stacks were not great for it because I I mean I don't really want to just check shove like nineteen k into six k or something, right? Um, we can check raise small, and then yeah, there are probably a decent number of turns you can just can shove the just turn. rip on, yeah. I, I, of course, I, I any club, um, a seven, an eight, uh, a jack, a queen. Actually, maybe not a jack. Maybe if maybe if you hit a jack, you might want to yeah, I'm a check, check, to, check to induce 
basically, I'm just thinking like his both of these players are going to have nothing a huge portion of the time, mm. and I have a hand like I have a very good semi bluffing hand, obviously, right? Um, a hand that's going to perform very well even against like the the tops of their ranges. Uh, I mean, by very well, I mean like better than pretty much anything else right, right. <laughs> against against the tops of their ranges. Um, so it's a hand that. Like I, what I would kind of like to do is find a way to get them to put as much money into the pot as they're willing with nothing, and then take it down. All that, right, that's kind of my my starting point for like what I would like to accomplish here. Um, I think it's going to be tough to get the big blind to put money into the pot with nothing, just because he's a very straightforward kind of player. Right. The only quote unquote nothing he could really have that he continue with is you know worse flush draws, which pretty unlikely. Yeah. Three four off or something. Three four. If he had a at a wheel draw, but like Danny, on the other hand, this is essentially the. I mean, the, the reason or part of the reason I didn't three bet preflop is that I thought he might get pretty frisky in this like wide range versus wide range. You know, you know that I know that you know that I have nothing. Okay, sort of so then, so then you don't want to check raise because you don't want to get three bet stuffed in your face. Well, no, or, I'm actually would be okay with him like. I mean, obviously, it would be ideal if he would, like, three-bet fold the flop, right. which I think would be the most... Like, if, if he did choose... I just thought he might be more likely to just bluff-raise a lead than to, like, bluff three-bet versus check-raise. Hmm. Um, he, he he may float a check-raise kind of wide. Um, and that, like... There, that, there'd be that's not exactly great for you. If, I mean, if I'm planning on just, like, shoving any turn, that's then that's fine. Like, well, certainly if you're only planning... Well, if you're only planning on... It might even be good... Even if you're only planning on shoving the turns that improve your equity, like right. the, the non-ace, non-low card, non-club, etc. Yeah, um, so I mean, there's something to be said for for inducing floats, but I did kind of like structuring it in a way that enabled me to just put the last bet in and get him to make you know because if if he does raise a lead, he's gonna um, I think put in more than he would if he just see bets and then folds to a check raise. That makes sense. Uh, I mean, I guess there could also be something to be said for like check calling the flop and then bluffing the river if he checks behind the turn, or check shoving over a turn bet or, or something like that. But I, I kind of want to. It seemed to me I should be thinking in terms of how to, um, how, how to get him to put as much weak money into the pot as possible. Right. Not so much be concerned about like how do I avoid stacking off if he does have a huge hand. How do I extract value from like lower flush draw? Like mostly just thinking about how do I get the maximum amount of bluff money from him into the pot. Okay, uh, I can see where you're going with that, but uh, I'm not sure leading is the best way to do that mm -hmm. because I'm not sure people are so willing to raise. Like, what what do you expect him to raise with here when you lead into two people? Mm -hmm. Um, even if ranges are wide, um, do you really think he's just going to go for it with, say, I don't know, ace nine off and just be like, well, this guy could be weak, so I'm going to raise fold here? Uh, I think when when somebody who's a competent player leads into two people, it looks pretty strong mm -hmm. and it looks like, at worst, uh, a draw that is looking he's looking to, to, to looking to rip and get the last bet in. So, I mean, do you think this is a pretty good spot? Like, let's say that I had jack nine hearts here instead where I just have jack high and like a backdoor straight draw. <laughs> Um, th it seems to me if like if he's if if the big blind is going to play really straightforwardly and the button is going to assume that a lead is really strong, this would be a pretty big a pretty good spot to just bet eighteen hundred with like anything I had that with the flop. Uh, yeah, uh, with the caveat that even if he looks strong, it might not prevent him from calling. Right is the is the problem with doing it with the jack nine of hearts as opposed to the jack nine of clubs. Mm -hmm. At least you know when you do it in two people and you just get the call, you still have your equity. Um. Yeah, uh, but 
by that rationale, I do think that that if if he really does believe that it's so strong that he's actually going to overfold, then sure, lead lead Jack nine, lead Jack eight, like lead any of these just bare three straights with one over. Yeah. Because I was just kind of thinking, like, well, if if it's such a good spot for me to bet out with nothing, then you know, and, and his range is is really that wide. Like, he's you know, okay, so he'll defend. He'll probably call me with something like thirty percent of the deck, um, just like anything that has a piece of the board or two over cards. Uh, and then you know, is he really just like never going to have a bluff raising range? So I mean, I. I I don't know. That, that was that was my thinking on on leading out anyway. Is that like I can get I can get light calls and, and probably some light raises as well. And there aren't really that many hands he can raise looking to get it in. Okay. Uh, and so your plan, I, I'd imagine, is to uh, just keep betting. Uh, yeah. On if, most if turns, he calls if he calls, flop, be because like, I think either that or check raise. Check on, on, honestly, I think you're a lot more likely to get calls in this flop uh, right. from all but the the premiums and from you know maybe maybe the the occasional. Unsemi bluff or <laughs> uh, ambitious semi bluff, let's call it, and then the I guess the better flush draws and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I, I think like leading and then check shoving a lot of turns has potential as well. If he is going to call the flop really light, and then you know that he may both bluff and also bet fold some some pairs on the turn. Yeah, I could buy that. So that's what I was going for anyway with with uh, with the lead. So I led eighteen hundred, big blind folded. Danny raises to forty five hundred on the button. Um, you know, I ended up just shipping it for like nineteen. I th- I, that that part I think is pretty unbalanced in that like I'm not going to ship a set there. Right. I mean, there could be an argument for like calling and check shoving the turn or something, um, but I think that it you know if so a lot of this comes back to the the question of whether he's actually going to bluff raise the flop. But you know it, that is that is pretty much the uh, <laughs> the crux of this is if he's bluff raising wide, then it's probably fine to, to be so imbalanced. But I agree, it, it is very imbalanced to, to do to bet three bet here uh, because it just seems like maybe ace 10 you're doing that with, maybe. Mm-hmm. You never have two pair, uh, and I just rarely think you have sets. Mm-hmm. Though if you're going to bet three bet this hand, I mean, probably deuces is a hand you might want to consider yeah. balancing that with. But yeah, I guess kind of where I'm going is I don't, I don't know that the shove really needs to be balanced in the sense that I'm not like, cause I, I do think it's true that he's not, he's not raising in like a depolarized way. I mean, I mm. think when he raises, he, he has hands that are happy to he's call like, a shove and he has hands that are happy to fold to a shove and he's not going to raise with like five, six to see where he's at. And then, you know, consider when I shove be like, Oh, I wonder if he has a draw, right? you know? Um, so it's sort of like, you know, is he going to hear me with like, king high or ace high because he's like oh i was raising as a bluff but when he shoves he can only have a combo draw so i can call him with ace high. you know i don't think that's gonna happen um true so that was like the main reason i wasn't concerned about like at that point i feel like i can basically turn my cards over and shove and there's not a whole or you know all but turn them over and there's not a whole lot he can do about it because it, it just depends on like how strong his raising range was in the first place but you know if, if he raises a bluff he's, he can't suddenly turn that into a calling hand i don't think that's that's a good point um, so yeah, I mean th- that part I was less concerned about. I, I think you're you're right. It's certainly an open question, and, and you're not the first to question uh, <laughs> just just how wide he actually would be raising. Well, to be fair, I mean, uh, when people go over and listen to this and hear uh, my stuttering and rambling, they <laughs> might uh, realize that you know uh, maybe I'm not checking in this spot because it's something that I've thought through, or maybe it's just something that's kind of an intuition play mm-hmm. um, where I just really feel like. Um, Almost like uh, 
almost like the stereotypical draw advice where, oh, this guy drew drew two and I'm drawing three, so therefore I should check to him because he's going to he's going to auto bet it. I feel a little somewhat similarly similar in these types of situations, even if it's not actually true. <laughs> um, so yeah, he had the uh, the ten five offset. So I think, I think we're, we're on the right track in terms hand. of his uh, his opening range. That's yeah. I mean, that's that's when he's not folding. <laughs> <laughs> um, any hands worth worth discussing from your main event, or you want to get on to Venetian? Uh, hands? From my main event, definitely not really. Uh, the really only the the hand I had a a bit of a doubt about was, and I don't really remember the exact runout. So. Actually, maybe I do if I just take a couple seconds. Uh, <laughs> okay, actually, I do. So some guy who seems like an amateur opens 250 in level one at 5,100. Uh, JC Alvarado, who's very, very good live pro, uh, former online pro, current online pro. He lives in Mexico. He can play on Poker Stars every single day. Uh, He's sponsored by Poker Stars, isn't he? Uh, used to be. Okay. Uh, he three bets uh, in the cutoff to 700. I have kings in the small blind. I decide to cold call um, because I feel like if I four bet, he's not folding, and I'm just going to put myself in a pretty disgusting spot. In yeah, it's just like obviously you have a big pair, and yeah, this way at least you draw the weaker player into the pot exactly. And, yeah, and of course he the weaker player snap folds, uh, so we're heads up to a pot that has um, eighteen hundred, seventeen hundred, I think, uh, something like that. Uh, flop is jack eight three with uh, two clubs. I don't have the king of clubs. I check. He bets. Uh, I believe nine hundred. I call. Turns another three, pairing the bottom card on the board. I check. He bets twenty two hundred, and I call again. River is uh, deuce of diamonds. So complete. Utter brick. Check again, and he bets 8K, which is a slight overbet. And, I mean, against somebody who I felt like was a like a stone amateur or somebody who's just always heavy here, mm-hmm. I might find a fold. But against somebody like JC who, well, maybe he's not, not three-betting very often in the main event and therefore is more weighted toward aces exactly, yeah. um, I still feel like he can have enough of a balanced balanced range with his overbets to to make a crying call here. Um, the bet sizing ace, is so... You do block ace-king, which is kind of significant. True. You don't block ace-queen. Uh, but I also figured he could occasionally get there with uh, some club draws that are now kind of obliged to bluff. Mm-hmm. Um, think there's any chance he's doing this with queens for value? Uh, almost never. I think he checks back queens... Okay. Maybe, maybe occasionally, but I don't think if he's value betting queens, I don't think he's going for it this big. Right. I think it's he's going for it with a, a smaller sizing to try and get a call from like tens jack or, X yeah. or, or tens or nines. I mean, stuff for me to have like jack nine suited when I call That's call thing. out of like, position. I mean, cause I know I was saying like your range is kind of face up if you if you four bet, but I do think like it's not like you're concealing that much information by cold calling a three bet either. Your well, I kind of am because now I keep uh, I keep jacks full and eights full. I mean, obviously very small portions, but those are still in my range when I go check call twice on this board. Um, but I just meant th- three betting versus... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but no, I, I do agree you should definitely be slow playing your, your what are now boats, um, and I think that helps to 
protect some of your folds. Right. Um, I don't know if it protects enough of them to put kings in there. Maybe it does. Well, that, that's kind of the question. Like, I mean, I don't think it matters very much if you have kings as opposed to tens. Right. Even sevens, really. Like, you know, e- either he's he's bluffing a busted draw or he's not. I, doubt, I don't think you're going to see, like, if we're, if, if we're thinking queens isn't in there, then it doesn't really matter that you have kings. So we can just kind of think about what are the best bluff catchers. Like, you want to call with with some hands that aren't boats and fold others. Right. And uh, you know, it may be the case that, that the 10s and the 8s are better bluff catchers because they're not blocking ace-king. Yeah, but they are blocking 10-9 suited, right. um, queen-10 suited, that kind of stuff that right. you might be 3-betting and then going for it with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. But, yeah, the aces, spoiler alert. And uh, <laughs> I felt kind of dumb about it. Um, yeah, other than that, I feel like my main event was uh, – Painful, but quick. Quick and painless, <laughs> no. Quick and painful, sure. At least it was quick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you are now. You made it to day two of the main event of the Venetian deep stack, that, 5K. That is right. I actually uh, did make that. Uh, I decided to fire off one last tournament of the summer um, to just see if I have that one summer saver left. Then I managed to play four whole levels of poker by max late ridging and got 4x starting. So... Um, could try and look up a couple, or at least one hand I played from there, which at least had an interesting river decision, If even if the other streets were not so good. Uh, I've, I've taken to the habit of writing these on, down on my phone, along with how many hands I actually uh, play, <laughs> just to gauge like how fast the deal is. What's my actual, how loose am I actually playing? Yeah. Um, and I'm not playing that loose, apparently. <laughs> Maybe even boarding on nitty. And, of course... As soon as I say that, we play a hand involving me having the eight and six of clubs. Uh, it folds around to the small blind, and this is at 150, 325. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty early. I just doubled up the old-fashioned way by getting it in aces versus ace, king, and holding. Um, skill game. Total skill. Uh, and so I have my opponent covered. He probably has... 32k at this point from 25k starting I got about 50, 50. Um, so about 100 something big blinds and uh, I won't say his name but I will tell you he's a blade regular like very good I have nothing but respect for his game and uh, his name is alliterative very alliterative uh, he opens the small blind to 900 I call the big blind uh, a flop is nine six four rainbow. And by the way, I have eight six of clubs, and there is a club on board. I just don't remember whether it was the nine or the four. So you got middle pair and a couple. Of middle pair, some back doors. He bets uh, fourteen fifty. Uh, I put in the call. Yeah. Uh, way too way too far up there in my range to even consider consider folding. No, folding is um, out of the question, and I think you know any kind of like thin value slash protection raise. Uh, maybe if you didn't have all the back doors, but the fact that there are so many good turn cards for you, I oh, really yeah. see, no, see no reason for you to raise the flop at all. Oh, yeah. I completely agree. I'm glad we have a nice standard hand <laughs> so far. Uh, so the turn is the ace of spades putting out a backdoor spade draw. Uh, my opponent checks, and uh, I decide to check it back. Um, yeah, I think the check is a little fishy. Not, not fishy in the sense of a bad play, but just... Um, I would, th- I, you know, it, it's a pretty decent card for him to barrel. Right, so, so why when, isn't he? Exactly, yeah. When he does check there, I'd be a little uh, concerned. I think you have enough. You know, I, I might still bet, like, the very bottom of my range um, that, that benefits from him folding, like, 
in this case, any hand that he folds is going to be a hand that you're probably doing pretty well against anyway. Right. So I, and I'd be less inclined to bet for protection because I don't think he's going to be overfolding in this spot. Definitely not. I feel like he's never folding a nine. He's ne obviously never folding an ace. Yeah. Uh, he might not want to fold pocket sevens or eights. And granted, is his range is pretty wide here, yeah. like very wide, obviously opening from the small blind. But that you know plays against me a little bit in that now he has every ace x. He has plenty of nine x. And even the the hands that you that you know he might fold that you'd most like him to fold like king queen or so, you know two overcard sorts of hands, I think those might be among the hands that he's most likely to barrel. Right. You know, a, a, like besides draws, those are the hands that have the best equity against your calling range. So I think you know, th there are some turns where he might be check folding those a little bit more often. This is one where I think that they may not even be in his checking range. Um, so yeah, I, I like checking back here. Okay, I'm glad we agree here. Uh, so the river is the six of hearts, diamonds, I don't know, it was a red six. Okay. So flush miss, and I have trips. Um, and now my opponent, he bets, uh, what did he bet? 2,600 into a pot of, into a pot of 2,900 plus 1,800 plus the antes, which is something 5K, like, yeah. So he's, he's betting about half the about pot. About half pot. Yeah. And so my decision, obviously, is to make the hero check back, by which I mean hero non-raise, right. um, just call, or put in a raise and hope he doesn't three-bet it in my grill. And I actually debated for a while, and, uh, well, first I want to hear your thoughts before you hear what I did, wow. but I debated for a very long time, because in my thought process for why it wasn't just an automatic decision is because my range is, has got to be very capped here. Yeah. Like very, 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 very capped. I just literally cannot have a boat here ever because what two pair am I ever checking back on the turn? What sets am I ever checking back mm -hmm. at any point in this hand? So the best hand I can have is is trips. And if I have trips, I guess I have trips with better kickers, but how much does that really matter if I'm, you know, if I'm getting three bet and having to decide whether he has a boat or he has a bluff? Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's actually there, there's kind of like a floor to your range also in that you know I I think when you call the flop and then check back the turn, it's an indication that you have some showdown value. Um, I, I guess I wouldn't say that you could never do that without showdown value, but I think the the number of hands you have like the number of candidates you have for bluff raising the river, considering that like calling the river with a small pair, like let's say that you have just paired four with the bottom card on the board. So okay. you know, if you just pair the four, it's not that you have to turn that into a bluff and raise the river. Like you could consider just calling the river, I think. Um, so I think this is, you know, it's difficult for you to have a wide value raising range on the river because it's difficult for you to have a bluff raising range on the river. True. I, I actually uh, tend to agree here because thinking, thinking on it, I probably would bet seven, five, seven, eight, 10, eight, uh, various low spade draws that I might happen to have. I'm probably betting those in the turn a lot, so it is tough for me to have a bluff raising range here. Uh, if I were to bluff raise, I'm trying to think of hands that I would do it with. I mean, maybe turning yeah four into a bluff is the the most most readily available way for me to have beefed up beef up my river bluff raising yeah. range. Haven't gotten to the river this way. And uh, I mean, I th there may be some people listening to this who are like, "You have trips in a blind battle. What do you?" <laughs> what are you being such a pussy about? Right. Um, and I think that... Believe me, I was thinking the same thing to myself <laughs> on this river decision. <laughs> Probably why you were going to bed last night as well. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I, I think against weaker players, this is a, a very easy river race. It's like you're going to see a lot of ace X from them. They may have trouble folding the ace X. They're not going to bluff three bet you. It's just like against non-elite players, it's a pretty easy river race. Against really elite players, like these considerations we're talking about come into play. Like even though you're pretty sure you have the best hand, um, that doesn't necessarily mean you can raise for value because a he has to he has to find a justification to call you with worse, right. and you know b he has to. Some portion of his range is gonna jam on you, right. and that's gonna suck. And some of it's gonna be boats, and some of it's gonna be stuff that he happens to turn into a bluff. If you're in his shoes, what hands would you be turning into a bluff here? Uh, I mean, would you be turning, um, I don't know, ten nine into a bluff? Would you I mean, consider? Are, are you assuming betting? he couldn't just be bluffing right now? Like, couldn't he? Oh yeah, I guess he, he could just, have, just have like miss miss spades or you know, ten eight or whatever. Yeah, I feel like he probably has enough non pair hands in his betting just, range that he doesn't need to to draw pairs to jam with. Right, but I mean, I would think that, well, I think you might want to do it with, the, with some blockers That's to true. to boats, but yeah. if I can't have a boat anyway, what does, it, what does it matter? And if he's perceptive enough to know that I really can't have boats in my range, it really doesn't matter if he has blockers to boats because what's he blocking? Nothing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if there's a, if it's worth considering like Ray's calling here. I, I did consider Ray's, actually, uh, I did consider Ray's calling. Just because I, against like a weaker player, actually, I would consider raising, raise folding. Right. But against somebody as good as this opponent, I would say, <laughs> you know, raise and then side call because he just knows I'm so capped. And yeah. He but, just I mean, has the the experience and the and the and the results and the and the confidence to just go for it, probably. Yeah, but that's pretty dicey too because he's, I mean, he's also going to shove all better hands. Or right. Most exactly. Better hands anyway. Just because he's a good player doesn't mean he doesn't get good hands. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think I've pretty well talked myself into uh, into a call. Okay, well, here's where we differ because I eventually talked myself into a raise to uh, sixty six hundred. Uh, what do you think about that sizing? I think it's a little on the smallish side. Uh, it's not even a full three x. Uh, um, I mean, I think given what I said about how difficult it is for you to have balancing bluffs, I think that raising on the smaller side does make sense. Um, all right. Yeah, I, th- I think like even min raising might not be out of the question. Just pop it to fifty two. Yeah, so he tanked for quite a while, and he did the thing where he, you know, grabbed his chips, kind of like cut him out like he was gonna put in a three bet, put him back, looked at his cards again, finally folded. So I, I feel like I got him to fold like probably an ace x or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't think he might he might have folded like ace nine or something, which obviously is correct, but. It's. I mean, it would be the kind of uh, amazing fool that I expect an amazing player to make. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that hand. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I need to go back to just getting aces versus ace king preflop. That's that's my wheelhouse. <laughs> Come on. While we're on the subject of uh, thin thin river raises, this is actually a cash game hand. Okay. Um, but I'll I'll run it past you. I think it's sort of interesting. The the villain in this hand. Uh, so this this took place in the Aria five ten game, which allows a three thousand dollar max buy in. Um, so it plays pretty deep, and I, I, villain and I were both sitting pretty deep. The villain um, had been there all day on Friday. Like I, you know, he and I had both been there like all day Friday, and then I showed up again on Saturday. I don't know if he was still there or if he was just there again. Which casino like is this at again? Aria. Okay. Um, I feel like there there are some Aria regs who I would not be surprised to see still there. putting in. 30 plus hour sessions. Yeah. Uh, same with Bellagio regs. I play way more at the Bellagio than I do at the Aria, so I don't want to speak out of my area of expertise, but 
there are some Bellagio regs you'll see posted up there who just never seem to leave. Mm. So it could be one of those guys. Um, now, all that said, you know, I didn't necessarily play with him. He, like, he had been in the main game all day on Friday. And uh, I, so, I mean, I saw that he was in that game. I didn't play with him the whole time. I didn't have actually that strong of a read on him or like even know for sure that he was a rig. I just knew he was there those two days, uh, putting in a lot of hours. Um, I did see him squeeze his button once in what I thought was a, was a pretty good spot. Um, and I don't have a recollection of like a lot of hands that he played or have a real strong sense of like how good of a player he was or anything. Uh, so this hand, the uh, player in middle position opens with a raise to 30. Okay. I call in the hijack. The cut. I have pocket sevens. The cutoff calls, and this player in the big blind makes it one seventy. Okay. How deep are you? Um, over three k, thirty five hundred. All right. Um, he makes it one seventy. The middle position folds. I call, and the cutoff folds. Uh, I like how this is working out so far. <laughs> oh, let's just play a big three bet pot, super deep with position and a pocket pair. I like it. Um, how, what would you think of his squeezing range there? I mean, I know a lot depends um, on who the middle position player was, but you said it was from the big blind. Yeah. He squeezed from the big blind. Uh, I would expect it to be fairly, Hmm. I was going to say polarized, but I could imagine people doing it a little, uh, more depolarized, um, mm -hmm. having like suited broadways here. Um, especially so deep. I don't think he's gonna be super, super polarized. Cause I don't think he wants to, you know, really, really inflate the pot. If he is assuming he's a thing, right? I don't think he wants to inflate the pot with, you know, 10, four off or like ace, right. ace five off or something that. Yeah. I, th I think the bluffing hands are more likely to be, you know, ace five suited King Jackson. They're going to have some sort of like post flop robustness where exactly. you can, you know, feel, he can, he can feel good barreling. Yeah. Sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's right. You know, maybe, maybe suited connectors or suited gappers. The thing about those, and I think maybe this is what you're getting at when you asked about the position is that he's also getting a really good price to call with us. Oh yeah. Um, so some people, you know, even if those are hands that he might squeeze from the small blind, he may choose just to, to call and close the action with a hand like 10-8 suited rather than... Absolutely. I mean, a lot of live players just think it's a... would, And maybe rightfully so to think it'd be a big, big tragedy to reopen the action right. and let you forward or let the opener forward or let somebody forward and then prevent him from seeing a flop with something that can flop a big deceptive hand. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was kind of my thinking on his on his range as well. Like not necessarily uh, super nutted, but um, the, the kinds of non nut hands are more likely to be hands that, that can make strong, strong you know, pots. Strong that are worth playing hands, 350 yeah. big blind pots with sometimes, um, whether semi bluffing or or you know making nutted making, hands. Yep. But, um, so he makes it 170. I call the other two fold, and we've got about 400 in the pot. Flop is Jack Seven Deuce with nice. two diamonds. <laughs> I'm liking this. <laughs> yeah, so far so good. Yeah, uh, he bets one seventy again. Okay. Um, um, well, I mean, my first instinct is to to raise it up mm -hmm. um, because it's something I'm probably going to want to do with a lot of my draws. Um, and if I'm going to want to do it with my draws to uh, eventually put them off, I'm going to have to balance that out with these value hands. And there's nothing that excludes him from having an overpair. Yeah, uh, or a hand that he's going to continue with and be very happy to put in more money with. So I'm very, very willing to oblige him and, and pop it up here and uh, play a big pot with my middle set. I tend not to raise draws here because there are so few hands I can raise for value. Like, it's really only sets. You know, I'm not going to have jack seven or seven deuce. Um, so I, I, I tend to just well, that's fine, but call this flop. Okay, but if 
I mean, maybe you can just do it by restricting it, restricting the number of draws that you actually raise. Yeah. Um, maybe to just the, was it the Jack and seven of diamonds out there? Or could you have had a possible four to a straight flush? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I just kind of want to get a lot of money in the pot right now. Yeah. Um, just because, yeah, make it make the pot big now to make it tougher for him to to fold out hands that you're crushing later. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I guess that there's kind of an argument. Like, it's not like you have to raise all of your draws here. You can just kind of pick pick the best draws right. to, to balance out the sets. And you're not raising that often, but when you do, you do have some mix of sets and draws. Right. And I mean, you don't have to always raise the ace-high flush draw here, but I think I might just because if you think his range is really depolarized, you could get it in against one of the many, like if you have, uh, I don't know, ace three here, ace three of diamonds, right. that leaves, you know, plenty of king X, king queen, king 10, king yeah. nine suited maybe. Maybe even 10, nine suited right. if he does choose to three bet that. Those, yeah, those gut shots plus, plus flush draws. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think you can find a way to raise this. Yeah, um, so I flatted with my with my set. Uh, that puts now like six seven hundred and fifty dollars in the pot. Okay. Uh, turn is an eight that puts up a second flush draw. So the board now is jack eight yep. seven deuce with two flush draws possible. Okay. He checks, and uh, at this point I got kind of a a physical tell like he was planning on folding to a bet. Um, I couldn't okay. tell you what exactly it was, but um, something about the, the way he jacked it, it, it felt to me like he was planning on folding to a bet. Um, and at the very least, I think he's unlikely to call. <laughs> he's unlikely to call two bets. No, it's all, it, sorry, it's just a little awkward because they announced the main event bust out, and I actually know the person who busted out, so I've got to put in my applause for him. <laughs> Gabe Paul, congratulations. Gabe Paul. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a really bad run out for his... Three, given what we've said about his three betting range, when he doesn't bet the turn, which I would expect him to do if he has a draw himself, like if he has uh, either he flopped a diamond draw or if he has uh, if he turned a, um, the other flush draw, I would expect him to bet that uh, because I don't think he has a lot of those middle, you know, I don't think he has a lot of straights or two pairs or sets in his range. Um, Jack's being the one possible exception to that, although he might choose to bet that as well. And also, I'm obviously not trying to build a pot against right. a set do of not, Jacks. Do not want to build a pot with one out. <laughs> that's that's some pro advice right there. <laughs> if you have one out, you might want to keep the pot small. But like, I think the lower set, like I think pocket eights, he's probably not squeezing. Uh, I think he'd be way more likely to just call that out of the big blind. Agreed. Um, so I think I mean, that... Yeah, the same goes for deuces. I think mm -hmm. he's actually pretty capped in this spot. And it's a spot where I think it would be a very good spot for me to, to just go barrel barrel on him. Um, right, because he's just in a pretty a pretty nasty spot at this point. But I didn't especially want to just get him to fold immediately with his two overs, probably. Yeah, and I thought also because it's like if you're not if you don't have that kind of tight, it's not even really a read, but guess on his preflop range, it's not a board where a lot of people would check back a set because it seems like a really scary board. Like there's all these draws out right. there. I'm not worried about him having a gut shot. I'm not worried about him having uh, even a flush draw. I think he's usually betting. So I, I thought it might be pretty deceptive to check back a set in a spot where I didn't think I was that likely to get two, uh, two streets out of him. Right. Um, I mean, there are some gross river cards. You really don't want to see a diamond. You really don't want to see uh, the nine or the 10 that puts the four straight out there, though, given his range. 
it's not so much that I'm worried about him having those, but it does make it hard for me to it, get it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely going to prevent you from getting paid off by his mm-hmm. by his one pair of hands or his over, or, yeah. I would say two pair of hands, but probably not that many out there. Um, yeah, it seems like a, a spot to make a tricky turn check back. It's, it's like almost like the opposite principle of the hand I was talking about in that now you, you're checking with an uncapped range. Right. Which against the right player might induce him to, to check rip the river or just that bet, was a bet big three part bet of the river hope. or something like that. Yeah, is that I'm I'm you know if, if he's really a, a savvy hand reader, which I might be giving him too much credit. This is all just based on like seeing him two days in a row. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's putting thirty hours of live poker. I mean, how could he not be the not be a psychic? <laughs> um, but you know, and also to to like a diamond may not be that bad because I probably am betting a lot of dime, my diamond draws on the turn. So I mean, I can check back like pair plus diamond draw maybe but even that is like i think like five six of diamonds still a pretty good hand to bet on the turn even if i do have a pair oh yeah that's i think that's one where i would want to have it in my my barrel barrel range so like i'm really not checking back checking back that many diamonds on the turn so if if he's really savvy he may um he may try to bluff me on the river he may make some thin calls on the river like i'm still thinking i can i think i may actually have a better chance of getting two bets into the pot by raising a river bet than by betting turn betting river um all right Fairly ambitious. Yeah, that that's the thing. Is like this is pretty FPSy against someone who's not like <laughs> pretty yeah. good player. When I you know when I'm up against uh, someone I think is a rare guy, I try to avoid the the FPS um, unless I really 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 think it's going to get him to do what I want. And even mm-hmm. then, like I'm wrong probably an astounding percent of the time. <laughs> so um, kind of defaulting to almost like defensive poker. Uh, against these regs is something that I might do a, a bit too much. Okay. Uh, so the opposite of defensive poker, the river <laughs> is the ace of diamonds. Okay. So now there's the three flush and, uh, okay, I guess aces could be out there, but I would actually, I wouldn't be surprised to see aces check the turn here. I think, I mean, uh, given what a bad turn card it is. Yeah. Like given given how, how, how many things, how scary that turn is, I, I could easily see aces just checking and hoping to, get another bet out in the river or I will say that aces is like literally the only better hand I'm worried about I think it's pretty unlikely that he has a flush I think it's pretty unlikely that he has a set of jacks even although I guess that's a a possibility Um, I'm not worried about the set of eights I'm not worried about having a straight so I think even though you know I my hand is not especially close to the nuts I think that his the villain's range is very unlikely to contain those hands and as is mine especially from his, like, I did check back a set, but my hope is that he's not expecting that. Um, also, that he's not expecting check backing, checking back flush check draws. Backing. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't see me check backing <laughs> flush draws. Yeah, we're going to turn, turn poker into like a, into like a position game. <laughs> I'm going to be the check back this time. You can be the, uh, the bet turn back. Uh, I'm running out of steam on this one. <laughs> I want to go back to the hand. <laughs> um, yeah, so I kind of felt like even though in, in some sense my hand was not that close to the top of what's possible on this board, it's sort of like the top of my range and also doing pretty well compared to the range that I think he has, although I do think aces right. at least are in his range. So you never have – I don't think you – would you check by jacks here ever, like the top set? Uh, I think it's better to check that than sevens. Okay. Like there's fewer fewer hands he can call me with when I have jacks than yeah, when I have sevens. makes a lot of sense. Um, so he bets 450 into 720 on the river. Okay. I mean, my, I probably almost always like just snap call here because, uh, yeah, I think just from, uh, just from, cause if you're wrong about the, the live read about the check folding, if you're wrong about that, 
You could be wrong in the direction of him having two diamonds that was playing a check shove or a check call or whatever because he has a diamond draw, doesn't want to quit this hand. Um, and, uh, yeah, but I mean, I probably just call. <laughs> I, I just think when you do get called, it's going to be by flushes and maybe like aces or it's tough for me to imagine him having jacks i mean i guess you could have it they was playing a check rip the, the flop with and i mean he would three bet that pretty he would bet i mean i hope he would bet the flop with top set but some people just don't yeah um but actually i wonder if he even folds like jacks here i i wouldn't be shocked if somebody to see somebody just you know fold jacks face up and you raise here um, so raising for value not a good idea. I really don't don't think you're getting called by much worse. Um, it would have to be exactly like Ace King, Ace Queen, Ace Jack, two pair. Ace Jack that's very skeptical. Um, well, Ace Jack is two pair though. It's better it's true. than Ace King. That's true. Not and people I'm people do. I mean think about absolute hand strength a little too much. I know sometimes I catch myself doing it yeah. as well. Although this is somewhat in contradiction with my previous belief of him being like a superb hand reader. Right. Like, oh, he just can't lay down too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of all over the place here. Um, yeah. yeah I, I think, honestly, this is probably more what um, Jared Tendler calls like entitlement tilt. Where okay. I, like I had in my, I was like, you know, like I've been playing for a long time and waiting to make a strong hand. I finally make a strong hand. I've been thinking that I'm going to get a river raise in, and I just feel like I'm entitled to that river raise. You know, yeah, no like, matter how <laughs> disgusting the, the river was, I'm even if it's river. even if it's like the the third or fourth worst river in the deck to see, gotta get that extra bet in. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe this is like autopilot for me, but. Uh, this is just a spot where I probably call within like five seconds and yeah. just cause like, Oh God, a flush got there. I, I, oh, I'm never beating anything that calls a check, calls my, my raise. So I'm just going to like call. And that might be a sign of laziness or just being a bit of a shortcut taking mental shortcut taking Greg. Uh, but yeah, I think I just end up calling very quickly. So I'm at 1200. Okay. Uh, he goes pretty deep into the tank. Um, to the point where I'm thinking, like, oh, maybe I do want to call. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, I, I guess I was thinking all along. I of course. I mean, you value, were saying you were yeah. raising for value. So, but yeah, yeah, basically, like, when... when so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking I'm probably looking for a call here. Um, and, uh, yeah, tank, 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 tank. And, like, finally, you know, pretty reluctantly calls, and I, I turn over my hand, and he, like, slams down his aces. Like, he's, like, so oh, excited. God. Like, what a great call he made. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, I mean, I in live poker... Raising the river is very, yeah. very rare. Yeah. You just do not see it that much in live cash games. Uh, even at 510, 1020 maybe more, but at 510, it's very rare. I very comfortably folded the second nut flush to a, a river raise uh, at, at Bellagio 510 just because it's one of those guys who you just know is never, ever, 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 ever in a million years raising the river without less than the nuts. And I had the second nuts. That's less than the nuts, <laughs> so I better fold. Uh, and yeah, there are just so many there, – there are a lot of people like that who they look like they're solid regs. They look like they're very immersed in poker and they're intensely dedicated to studying poker. But when it comes down to making that decision, it's still like, do I have the nuts? No? <laughs> I guess I can't raise. And maybe I've just revealed myself as thinking that way uh, with not raising the sevens. <laughs> but um, certainly that's way far, way more far away from the nuts than, than – uh, you know, 
other folds I've made. <laughs> yeah, and I'll say too, I, I think my read on him being a, a primo hand reader was was a little off from the way he was then kind of celebrating this hand with his friends uh, and also who his friends were afterwards. Um, they did not look like rigs themselves. Um, and he, was, he he seemed exceedingly excited to have won that pot um, <laughs> <laughs> and was sort of talking a lot about the hand in a, um, oh, Christ. Yeah. Um, hopefully that oh, Lord. Recording. Oh, Lord, computer <laughs> warnings. Uh, how do I, does this work on Macs? Hopefully oh you all are still hearing us. Apparently there's uh, something popped up on the laptop here saying that the disc the, was the full. The startup disc was full. Hopefully that's not the one this is getting recorded to because now <laughs> you're getting some excellent uh, computer problem commentary. <laughs> um, yeah. Right so here on the Thinking thinking Computer Problems <laughs> Poker cast. Uh, so hopefully you guys are, are catching the end of this. Um, I, I did lose that pot to a set of aces and uh, I think certainly in that hand got a little fancy play syndrome-y. Happens, happens to the best of us. Anything else you want to talk about well, in, in the hopes that we're still recording? Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, if only Jason here can make awesome jokes about me uh, quitting poker to become his butler. That's, that was the material I had lined up. Oh, uh, was that a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were, we were hoping we might be able to, to round Jason Somerville up to, uh, to record with us, but yeah, he's, he's, they've been doing this uh, poker news podcast every day. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think he's probably sick of being in front of a microphone and has, has other things to do as well. Though, if there, he does have other things to do, I'd imagine, but if there's one person I find tough to imagine getting sick <laughs> behind a microphone, it's, it's Jason. Um, oh, man. But yeah. It's really looking forward to making those butler jokes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining, Leo. I uh, definitely well, appreciate you doing this. Especially thanks thanks for having notice. me, Andrew. It's, it's always a pleasure. Um, and yeah, I'm going to go dip out of the Rio and Grind some poker. Have, yeah. have a good time at it. And hopefully, uh, keep I know, on. I know L I V I N. This is already your your second appearance, I think, in a month on the show. Oh yeah. Um, but we'll be happy to have a third if if you final table the Venetian. So, Absolutely. Let's uh, work on that. Fingers crossed. You know, I'll just work on picking up the aces. I've seen me winning pots with those hands with that hand. Big surprise. <laughs> Spread too thin and hoping for a sin.